This is the JPO Podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Today, we're bringing you the March 2020 episode of the podcast, as you know, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. We hope you're staying well, staying uninfected, and committing to social distancing wherever you are. Here in New Orleans, we apparently have developed the fastest rate of transmission in the country, and we're in the process of postponing all of our non-urgent orthopedic care. Wish us luck. On the program today, we're excited to welcome three authors to discuss their work. That's Paul Sponseller of Johns Hopkins, Patrick Cahill of CHOP, and Dan Miller of Gillette. Additionally, I wanted to invite everyone attending the POSNA annual meeting in May to join us on Wednesday, May 13th for our first ever live episode of the podcast. We'll be recording it on stage just before the opening ceremony. Of course, that whole meeting, like so much else, now hangs in the balance with coronavirus, so stay tuned. Now, with no further ado, let's kick things off. Here's Craig, one of my co-hosts. He's got an article about classifying lateral condyle fractures that I found particularly useful. Hello again, this is Craig Lauer coming from University of North Carolina. Next, we're going to discuss an article entitled, The Song Classification is Reliable and Guides Prognosis and Treatment for Pediatric Lateral Condyle Fractures, an Independent Validation Study with Treatment Algorithm. This is from lead author Brandon Ramo and senior author Chanhee Joe from Texas Scottish Rite in Dallas. The background is that lateral condyles are common, but there are numerous proposed classification systems of various value. So the purpose of this study was to assess the song classification for lateral condyle fractures. These are graded one through five, and they're looking uh, at agreement reliability. In addition to applying this classification retrospectively to a large group of fractures at Texas Scottish Rite, and evaluating whether the classification did guide treatment or prognosis. So as for the results, they had 736 patients eligible for the study that they included. The song class did prove to be reliable with intra-rater kappa at 0.094, inter-rater kappa at 0.087, indicating excellent agreement. Um, I'll note that uh, the authors do responsibly comment on their complications, frequencies of these uh, fracture types, and many other aspects of these fractures, but I'll have to refer the listeners to the article to see the details. because I want to do is recap um, their data and recommendations on the five song grades and explain those a little bit. Um, I'll acknowledge that I'm actively ignoring some of the study limitations, but I think this will provide a nice framework for the listeners to think about how to treat these fractures. So first off, let's take song one through three fractures. So these are all fractures with less than two millimeters of displacement on the most displaced view, which is typically the internal rotation oblique. Uh, the song one fracture line uh, has a fracture that exits laterally through the metaphysis, but it does not complete through the osseous metaphysis uh, near the notch. Uh, and this is stable just based off its radiographic image. You can see that it's an incomplete bony fracture. Uh, song two, the fracture line actually continues through the bony metaphysis and it's uncertain whether the cartilage is disrupted because uh, you cannot see that on x-ray. So it has indeterminate stability. Song three still has less than two millimeters of displacement, but the fracture gap is just as wide laterally as it is medially, which makes a hinge unlikely and means that this is characteristic of an unstable fracture despite two millimeters of displacement. Uh, the authors note that this is a pretty rare finding, only 17 in their uh, large cohort. So the question here is which fractures require closed direction perk pinning versus which can be treated in a cast. And as grade increases and instability increases, the authors demonstrated an increased risk of failure of long arm casting. So in their song ones that were treated in long arm cast, only 5% of these ended up failing and going on to operative treatment versus 80% of the song threes treated in long arm cast went on to operative treatment. So 
Those that failed long-arm cast were successfully treated with closed or open reduction and pinning later, so they conclude that song one and two it makes sense to initially treat with a long-arm cast knowing you have a bailout if it displaces or you are wrong about the classification. But the song three fractures, while they were rarely uh, treated effectively with a long-arm cast, the majority will fail, so it probably makes sense to go ahead and close reduce and perk pin these when you initially identify them. So moving on to the song fours and fives. These are all fractures that have greater than two millimeters of displacement based off of the maximal displacement view. Song four doesn't have a rotation of the fragment whereas the song five does. So the question here is whether closed reduction and perk pinning or open reduction and perk pinning is required. Long arm cast should really not be uh, the main modality of treatment. Uh, the study ultimately concludes that further study is going to be needed prior to resolving these controversies, but their data suggests that song fours can be effectively treated with closed reduction and perk pinning. Uh, for song fives, they were most effective in treating these with open reduction and perk pinning, but acknowledge that there are some surgeons who can obtain closed reductions of these, as song has demonstrated, and if you're one of these surgeons and can get an adequate closed reduction, that may be reasonable in this group. For their conclusions, they conclude that the song classification has excellent reliability, and it also has the ability to guide treatment in an algorithmic way while providing prognostic ability. Thanks, Craig. Lateral condyles are an interesting area that we, as a field, still really haven't quite got classified as concisely as some other conditions, but this seems like an important step in that direction. Next, we're going to Iowa to visit our co-host, Josh. He's bringing us a conversation with Dr. Paul Sponseller about his article about treating idiopathic early-onset scoliosis and trying to figure out the differences between using conventional growing rods and vectors. Hey guys, it's Josh Holt again, broadcasting from the University of Iowa. Well, we will now transition to the spine section of the journal and discuss the manuscript entitled Idiopathic Early Onset Scoliosis, Growing Rods versus Vertically Expandable Prosthetic Titanium Ribs at Five-Year Follow-Up. After a brief introduction to the manuscript, we will welcome Dr. Paul Sponseller, the senior author of the manuscript, to the program. This study is a retrospective review of patient data generated from two different study groups, the Children's Spine Study Group and the Growing Spine Study Group. The authors of the manuscript set out to compare the outcomes of specifically idiopathic early onset scoliosis when managed with either traditional growing rods or a vector. All patients were followed for at least five years and had undergone at least four lengthening procedures. By combining patients from each study group repository, the authors were able to identify 72 patients with idiopathic early onset scoliosis that were managed with either traditional growing rods or vector. One key difference between the two groups of surgically treated patients was the age at time of the initial surgery, with the vector patients being 4.3 years old and the growing rod patients being 5.5 years old at time of initial surgery. The results of their study showed that vector patients had more procedures on average than growing rod patients. Vector patients had less curve correction and achieved a smaller percentage of thoracic height than did the growing rod patients. Additionally, growing rod patients had better maintenance of curve correction, less kyphosis, and 15% greater absolute gain in thoracic height when compared to the vector patients. Further, vector patients had more wound complications than growing rod patients at 41% compared with 14%. The authors did find that curve correction was similar in both groups when comparing patients with unilateral versus bilateral constructs, although unilateral constructs were used much less frequently than bilateral constructs. It's a great honor to now welcome to the program Dr. Paul Sponseller from the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, to discuss his manuscript. Dr. Sponseller, welcome to the program. 
Hi, Josh. Thank you for uh, setting this up. I appreciate the chance to discuss it. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on the program. You obviously have a lot of insight and a lot of experience with um, growth-friendly or growth-preserving instrumentation of the spine. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on aspects of your study. So the first question I have for you is, I was surprised to read in your study in the two groups with the vector and the traditional growing rods that curve correction was similar between the bilateral and the unilateral constructs. Do you have any thoughts on why that would be the case or is that something that surprised you guys as well? It did surprise me. And just to iterate, the purpose of the study was to really uh, look at a group of patients who, for whom vector was really not initially envisioned at all, which is idiopathic scoliosis, really the most spine-based condition that you can have in the growing realm. So we wanted to look and see how the two treatments performed against each other. And I think that the fact that bilaterals didn't perform any better may be perhaps a uh, reflection of how long the follow-up was, and perhaps rotation continues to develop in both cases. I usually think that bilateral constructs help to control rotation and provide some translation by kind of pushing things over to the midline. But I believe that in these cases, with the follow-up that we had, some rotation had continued to develop on both. And we know that these constructs, neither one can really control rotation perfectly. And certainly with any early onset scoliosis, there's a lot of preoperative planning that goes into things before we ever get to the operating room. And it's hard to make a blanket statement for every case. But would your standard be for bilateral constructs or unilateral constructs if you had to pick one? I still am a huge fan of bilateral constructs. I think it provides protection against rod fracture, provides protection uh, against anchor cutout. And so I still have continued to use that. It just intuitively feels better to me. Unless the patient has kind of an extreme three-dimensional deformity that you just can't contour rod to on one side, especially the convex kyphoscoliotic side. But I always try to do two myself personally. That's just my still uh, strong impression. Gotcha. That's certainly in my early training and, and so far in my career, that's certainly the standard that I've seen used most commonly. The other question that I have for you is certainly reading the abstract and quickly reading through this journal, someone might say, well, why in the world would anyone ever use a vector? Looking at the final follow-up with traditional growing rods having better maintenance of curve correction, less kyphosis, and 15% greater absolute gain in thoracic height. However, you guys do touch on in the article and, and highlight briefly the difference in age between the groups. I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on how much of a role you think that may have played that the vector patients were just over four and their traditional growing rod patients were nearly five and a half at the time of initial surgery. I think that represents uh, an important distinction. Historically, I think the, the study group that was heavier in vectors had a tradition of starting earlier with the thought you, you could build and grow a better thorax if you started earlier and got on top of it, whereas the uh, other group had a perhaps more reticent, diminishing returns-focused approach. So I think that that's why those two differences existed. In terms of the results, I'm not sure it made a huge difference in this follow-up of five years because the period of four to five and a half years is a pretty slow growing period for children in general. They're not really in a, a rapid growth phase. So I, I tend to think that as I assess it, that wasn't a meaningful difference that explained what we found. Yeah, that's a good point. It's certainly one of those minutia that's hard to really tease out, especially given the uh, limited patient size of all the studies. And as you mentioned, this is the, the biggest study to this point, the biggest group of patients of idiopathic early onset scoliosis that's been compared. 
Interested in your thoughts on the kyphosis difference between the two. We saw nearly twice the kyphosis in the vector group at 64 degrees compared to 38 degrees of thoracic kyphosis in the traditional growing rods. Is that a surgical technique thing? Is that a, a difference in where the kind of mechanical pressure is on the constructs? I think that uh, possibly vector uh, having an intrinsic curve may predispose that to develop. Uh, otherwise, it was one of those findings that I just was also surprised by and have no better explanation for. Okay. So I'm going to tighten the screws on you a little bit here. In 2020, is there a role for Vector in idiopathic early onset scoliosis, in your opinion? Well, I never want to say never to anything, um, but I think that in my mind, it wouldn't be my preferred technique. I feel like Vector tends to stiffen the chest wall more. This is really a primarily spine-based pathology as opposed to congenitals, which, which Vector was developed for. So I prefer not to use that. And I think the pendulum has swung away from that. Uh, when we looked at the overall distribution of all kinds of implant types, Vector had gone down quite a bit and growing rods still persisted, although they're now the magnetically powered growing rods. The one nice thing about Vector is it's surface-friendly contour with a nice design of the uh, curvature and anchors themselves. It, it certainly has a better profile than most other systems, but in my mind, I don't prefer Vector for, for idiopathic deformity, and I think the evidence shows that most people are swinging away from that in droves. And then while I have you on the line, I thought I'd tap into a little bit of your experience outside of this study. So certainly there's a, a couple schools of thoughts when you're placing these growth sparing or growth preserving instrumentation, whether you anchor them kind of at where you expect your final fusion anchors to be in the, ex the extents cranial and caudal of where your fusion will be, or whether you try to keep some virginal tissue for, you know, new anchors, both cranial and caudal to where your growth preserving instrumentation might be. Do you have a preferred technique? And when you're going into to place this growth friendly instrumentation, what is your thoughts as far as picking the proximal and the distal levels? Yeah, I don't try to guesstimate what the final anchor sites will be. I like to try to instrument as little as possible. And one of the nice studies that I rely on is a study from Turkey that Muharrem Izici did showing that attraction under anesthesia or even attraction awake film helps you to see which vertebra is going to move over to be stable. And he calls that the stable to be vertebra. And that's what I usually like to use. I like to use two anchors on each side, two levels distally for anchors and three levels proximally for anchors. So I usually just try to work with those. And I also am a huge fan of no final fusion. In other words, if the patient is maintaining good correction uh, and they grow to a stable point and they don't have any anchor problems, I usually just leave the implants in where they are. And that works even for uh, some idiopathics as well as the more you know fragile patients such as SMAs and severe CPs. So I really uh, use the stable to be anchor and that's kind of how I like to design my construct. That's really great insight, thank you. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listening audience before I let you go? No, I think that the growing spine space is still a really innovative and fast changing area. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, best anchors, preventing junctional kyphosis, and uh, I think that's a ripe area for study, and hopefully, uh, you know, many people will continue to work in those areas and possibly join the study groups so that uh, we can come up with better evidence. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Sponseller, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Josh, for uh, bringing all these points out. Have a great day. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Dr. Sponseller, for returning to the podcast. 
Next, we go to Denver, where Julia will tell us about femoral head OCD lesions in patients with Perthes. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm going to share synopses of two key articles from this month's journal with you today. The first one is titled, Open Reduction and Internal Fixation for the Treatment of Symptomatic Osteochondritis Desiccans of the Femoral Head in Patients with Sequelae of Leg-Calf Perthes Disease. This paper comes to us from Dr. Clohesy and colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis. To provide a bit of background, between 2 and 7% of patients with Perthes disease may have OCD lesions. And while open reduction internal fixation has been extensively reported in patients with OCD of the knee, most of the literature on femoral head OCD restoration has focused on osteochondral autograft transfer or allograft transplantation. The authors performed a retrospective review of patients with Perthes disease with mechanical symptoms, with an MRI demonstrating an OCD fragment of the femoral head and who had failed conservative management and gone on to ORAF of an unstable OCD fragment through a surgical hip dislocation. Seven patients, average age 14 years, met the inclusion criteria. Postoperatively, the authors noted significant improvement in range of motion, gait, and modified Harris hip score from baseline. At a final follow-up averaging 4.6 years, all patients demonstrated radiographic healing and no evidence of implant failure or progression of osteoarthritis. One patient underwent hip arthroscopy with repeat osteochondroplasty, so as lengthening labral and capsular debridement seven months later for ongoing hip pain. Four patients required hardware removal of the trochanteric screws for local irritation. However, no patients required conversion to arthroplasty at final follow-up. Of note, most of the patients in the study underwent additional procedures simultaneously, in addition to the ORIF of their OCD lesion, including labral repair, chondroplasty, and trochanteric advancement, which the authors note likely contributed to excellent clinical outcomes. In conclusion, the authors suggest ORIF for symptomatic femoral osteochondral lesions in patients with Perthes disease as a first-line surgical treatment reserving alternative cartilage restoration techniques as salvage procedures. Thank you, Julia. We'll discuss that second article shortly, but for now we're going back to Craig to discuss the always controversial topic of scoliosis surgery in patients with severely involved cerebral palsy. This is Craig Lauer from the University of North Carolina. Next, we're going to discuss the article entitled Improving Health-Related Quality of Life for Patients with Non-Ambulatory Cerebral Palsy. Who Stands to Gain from Scoliosis Surgery? This comes from lead author Dan Miller of Gillette and senior author Patrick Cahill of CHOP, who are both on the phone with me today, is in collaboration with the HARM Study Group Database. Uh, so welcome to you both. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'll just summarize the question briefly, and then we can get into some discussion. So the purpose of this study was to evaluate which factors are associated with an improvement in healthcare-related quality of life after spinal fusion surgery for GMFCS 4 and 5 patients with cerebral palsy. What made you ask this question in the first place? Sure, I can, I can tackle that. Um, it really stems from the whole thought process that went into creating this prospective registry for children with cerebral palsy and associated spinal deformity. Um, this was a, an effort spearheaded by Dr. Paul Sponseller, who's a longtime member of the HARM study group. Paul had seen how effective the HARM study group was at answering a lot of the most pertinent and relevant questions for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. And so he uh, designed and uh, launched the uh, cerebral palsy arm of the HARM study group uh, efforts. And when he was doing that, uh, he wanted to be thoughtful about what questions he asked. And, and the primary question he wanted to ask was, 
is surgical intervention um, beneficial to the cerebral palsy population? And fortunately, Uni Narayan uh, at SickKids at Toronto had recently developed a outcome instrument uh, that was disease-specific for cerebral palsy called the CP Child. Dr. Sponseller and Dr. Narayan got together when they were designing the Harm Study Group registry and included the CP child as the primary outcome for that study. So uh, fortunately for me, they were uh, gracious enough to uh, include me in the, the study and allow me to uh, query the registry pretty much whenever I had a, a, a question that was worth looking at. And one of the first questions I had was to look at early uh, surgical cohorts, the group of patients that we had gathered over the first couple of years to see if there was, uh, in fact, any uh, benefit in the health-related quality of life in that population. Sure enough, we found that there was a significant improvement in the surgical cohort when it came to the CP child scores, and I presented that at the annual meeting of the Scoliosis Research Society. It was sort of an empty house. It was like the last paper of the meeting or second to last paper, but um, uh, the people that were there were really interested and excited about it, and uh, there were a lot of questions from the audience. This validated the practice of a lot of people who were, who were surgically treating this population, but one of the most interesting questions came from Dr. Dan Saccato, and he asked, was this improvement seen? broadly across the entire population, or were there certain patients or patient characteristics that seemed to benefit most from surgical intervention? And that was a question I couldn't answer at the time, but that was the question that I took back to CHOP, and uh, Dr. Dan Miller was our clinical fellow that year, and so Dan and I uh, designed the question and queried the database and got launched with, uh, with this project. Perfect. Um, Dan, maybe you can jump in and summarize the main findings uh, when you did look at those two different groups. Sure. Absolutely. Happy to. So basically, when we took these uh, two groups, there was a, a subset of patients. About one third had a significant or what we call a clinically significant improvement in their CP child scores from their baseline levels before surgery. So we compared that um, group of patients to those who didn't. So either improved minimally or actually declined. And we compared a variety of different clinical and demographic and radiographic parameters between those groups. And what was really interesting is that there really wasn't any substantial difference either at the beginning or the end for any radiographic parameters whatsoever. And that was really enlightening. You know, surgeons, so much of what we focus on and in our study groups, in our meetings, and in terms of critically assessing our own outcomes is looking at the x-rays and seeing how much were we able to improve that Cobb angle, how level we're able to get the pelvis. And that really didn't seem to make any difference between the two groups. Really, the only thing that came down to it was that the baseline CP child score, the baseline health-related quality of life as assessed by the parent was significantly lower in patients who had substantial improvement. I'm glad to hear that a significant number of patients do get better um, by at least 10 points on that CP child. But it makes me wonder about the ones that don't. So I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. So if only 36% improvement, uh, I mean, that could be interpreted as there's a lot of unhappy patients. Should we only be operating on 36% of these patients? Or sure. are there other reasons to be doing this other than HRQOL? Well, to that, I would say a couple of things. You alluded to satisfaction, and I would say in many different studies that have looked at patient or caregiver satisfaction after a surgery like this tends to be quite high. So it's important to remember that outcome, whether it's using a disease-specific instrument, whether it's looking at radiographs and stuff like that, doesn't necessarily equal satisfaction. So in this case, I don't think it's fair for us to say whether or not patients were satisfied. And I think empirically and in the literature, we'd say that for the most part, at least caregivers are quite satisfied with the surgery. But then there comes the other you know, value of this surgery, whether or not we are changing 
the natural history of this progressive spinal deformity, because certainly there's an abundance of literature showing that the natural history of uh, at least a severe spinal deformity is quite progressive uh, in nature. It's not fair to say that because kids didn't get better, that surgery wasn't necessarily beneficial. Really, I think ultimately the main value of this type of surgery is preventing the deleterious effects of progressive spinal deformity later in life. And that's true for many of the things we do in pediatric orthopedics, whether it's uh, hip dysplasia, whether it's adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. And that's a real challenge to the practice of pediatric orthopedics. So many of these outcomes, we're trying to prevent things long-term as opposed to necessarily making kids better. You know, the HARMS uh, database is such a fantastic body of work and has been such a monumental effort by so many people who have contributed to this group. Hopefully, I think that's an answer that may be coming down the line, but both operative as well as the non-operative arms. Oh, let me get into that a little bit. So um, there is a non-operative arm within the HARMS group at this point. Is that what you're saying? And what are, what is maybe the future of this comparison? Yeah, I think I think that you're getting at the the crux of the situation. So we've shown here, I think that there is a group of patients that that are treated surgically that can have an improvement. Uh, but the uh, the question is that group of patients that don't necessarily have an improvement, what would have happened to them had they not had surgery? And um, mm-hmm. I would say stay tuned is the answer. Uh, the harm study <laughs> uh, does collect a cohort that's, uh, that's a non-operative cohort and, and we apply the same instrument, the CP child, to that group as well, and we are really close to being able to uh, present some really exciting and compelling work. That is really exciting, and I think that the next time we're on the podium, Dr. Cahill, with the with that kind of teaser, you're going to have a lot of people showing up. Can I ask you both how this has changed your practices, um, and how should listeners uh, how should they interpret this and take it home to their patients? Yeah, so in, in my practice, particularly as a young surgeon, I think an important part. Um, of, uh, of any sort of surgery, particularly in the patient with special needs or cerebral palsy, is having reasonable expectations uh, for the patient um, and their caregivers. And uh, one of my former mentors, Dave Spiegel, used to say that you can't solve a brain problem by operating on the spine. And I think this drives home some of those issues. Certainly, the CP child is meant to encompass so many aspects about quality of life and health-related quality of life related to cerebral palsy. And while many of those may be directly impacted or um, adversely affected by spinal deformity, it's not realistic to think that we can solve all those sorts of issues by improving um, spinal alignment or improving seating balance and that sort of thing. So, you know, I try and keep the um, expectations from a parental standpoint relatively low, particularly um, for the patient who's relatively high functioning. So one of the key findings uh, from this study, at least from my takeaways, is that patients who start out at a relatively low functioning, um, based on their CP child score, have at least a higher chance of improving, whereas the patient who starts out doing relatively well has relatively little room to gain or improve. Let me, let me take it back to you, uh, Dr. Cahill. Has yeah. this changed the way that you talk to your patients in your clinic? I think you hit the nail right on the head. I think this is the the biggest impact that um, these findings have had on my practices. It's really helping me educate families and set expectations about surgical intervention. I would say that I think it probably demonstrates um, that there's probably some usefulness to utilizing health-related quality of life questionnaires as a clinical tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense, if you could apply CP child in your in your clinic, you could identify those patients that you should be having the conversation about improving the quality of life and maybe make those decisions a little bit easier for that those families. 
Yeah, I think that's a really exciting application of this. So I really appreciate you guys coming together and uh, doing this as a group. Um, I think it made for an exciting discussion. And I think our listeners will really appreciate it. So thanks for all the hard work that you're doing um, and continue to do uh, for this patient population. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for the opportunity to discuss our findings and research. You bet. Thank you, Craig. Quite a teaser. Thank you, Dr. Cahill and Dr. Miller as well. Finally, to round things out for the month, we're going back to Julia for another article from the spine section of the journal. Specifically, she'll tell us about the late stages of the Sanders classification and when we can safely stop monitoring patients with scoliosis that doesn't quite meet surgical criteria. The second paper I'm going to review is titled, Is it Growth or Natural History? Increasing Spinal Deformity After Sanders Stage 7 in Females with AIS and comes to us from Dr. Ryan, Muko, and colleagues out of the University of Kentucky and Shriners Hospital in Lexington. Current practice widely accepts that patients reaching a skeletal maturity level of Sanders stage seven have reached the end of curve acceleration and that most AIS curves under 50 degrees are unlikely to progress more than one degree per year. The authors sought to determine the amount of curve progression in females with AIS in the first two years after achieving Sanders stage seven. They hypothesized that a subset of these patients will continue to progress and should be followed closely as they may require surgical intervention. A retrospective review was performed over a 10-year period, including patients with AIS and a Cobb angle less than 50 degrees, and with hand radiographs identifying them at Sanders stage 7, defined as closure of all physes in the hand except for the distal radius. The group of 89 included patients who were braced and those who were not. Average main curve magnitude was 33 degrees at Sanders stage 7 and 38 degrees at minimum two-year follow-up. Average height gain over that time was 1.8 centimeters. Interestingly, 51% of patients demonstrated progression of five or more degrees, and 19% progressed more than 10 degrees. 31% of the patients with initial curves less than 40 degrees progressed to more than 40 degrees. Average rate of progression was 2.3 degrees per year for the entire cohort. However, of the patients with curves greater than 40 degrees, 58% progressed to greater than 50 degrees or had surgery at two-year follow-up. A receiver operating characteristic curve analysis identified that a threshold of 39.5 degrees at Sanders stage 7 was associated with progression to greater than 50 degrees or surgery, with these patients 150 times more likely to progress than those with curves below 39.5 degrees. Age, modified lanky classification, height, weight, risograde, and brace treatment had no significant association with progression. These results suggest that the use of 30 degrees as a cutoff for expectation of less than one degree per year progression may not be accurate. And furthermore, Sanders stage seven may not be a definitive marker for the start of natural history progression. The authors conclude that patients with curves under 50 degrees at early skeletal maturity still have the potential to progress in a clinically significant manner, possibly due to remaining growth. And in particular, patients with curves over 40 degrees should be monitored longer than previously recommended. Thank you, Julia. That's practical information that will definitely change the way I think about those Sanders 7 patients with curves in the high 30s and 40s. That's it for the month. Thank you to everyone for joining us. And as a reminder, if you haven't yet checked out our other POSNA podcast, Interview with a PD Pod, we hope you will. It's hosted by Nick Fletcher from Atlanta and brings you some really unique, insightful conversations with leaders in our field. The most recent episode featured Jack Flynn, and as usual, I learned several things listening to him. 
Thanks. See you next month. And hopefully we'll also see you at the POSNA meeting for the live episode. <laughs> <laughs>